and welcome to Keep the Bastards Honest, the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and on this episode, the Queen is dead. Long live the King of Australia. It felt like the world came to a stop for a number of days with the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and the ascension of her son, Charles, from Prince of Wales to King Charles III. In Australia, it felt like the passing of the Queen revealed a number of fault lines, not just in our society or our politics, but in how we see ourselves as a nation and the history that we haven't begun to reckon with. While the issue of becoming a republic is ostensibly about changing our head of state from being the hereditary gift to a foreign-born family to being the office of an Australian citizen, The opportunity it presents to Australia is considerably bigger than that. It's an opportunity to reflect on and hopefully agree on our national identity and to come to terms with our colonial history. It's also an opportunity to map out our future and decide what country we want to be. As we moved through the official period of mourning for Queen Elizabeth and came to grips with King Charles, I felt like I was watching another culture war opening up as those who even mentioned the possibility of Australia moving to a republic were instantly shouted down because it was inappropriate, it was disrespectful, it was too soon after the Queen's death to even contemplate this discussion, never mind changing our system of government to become a republic. But a discussion was all that was being asked for and that a discussion could not even be contemplated in the aftermath of the Queen's death to the point where the assistant minister appointed to shepherd the nation through a referendum on the issue seemed to go into hiding, and the official Australian Republican movement suspended their campaign on the issue, revealed a a great deal about the maturity of this nation. So I decided to have a discussion on this, and my co-host Steve Beatty very graciously agreed to have it with me. And obviously we recorded it, so we could have the discussion with you as well. Steve and I pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the lands upon which we met, lands that were colonised in the name of George III, ancestor of Charles III, King of Australia. We also pay our respects to the elders, past and present, of the traditional custodians of these lands and to their ancestors. Sovereignty never ceded. So, Steve, I know you've been very, very busy the last month, well, probably the last six months, and you may not have realised, because it's not been widely reported, but Queen Elizabeth sadly did pass away at the age of 96. Oh. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I know it's going to come as a shock to you. I'm sorry. It does does come as a shock in in all seriousness. I I did hear about the passing of the Queen. It did cross my, my radar, isolated though I am. As with many, I have mixed mixed thoughts and feelings about the, the passing of the Queen, but um, I think we're going to get into those. So let's um, let's yeah. let's get started. And I, and I don't mean to sound flippant about the passing of the Queen, but um, mm. it's more of a, that was more that was not a reflection on the Queen. That was a reflection on the frankly saturation but- media coverage yes, yes where with the un- nothing else has been able i think we've had you know the the top 10 news stories on the abc website for the past week and a bit have been something to do with the royal family or the queen 
or the cue to see the queen's body lying in state or some other variation of stories about the queen and her passing, which feels over the top, I have to say. Yes, yes. Although the cue is a thing of absolute beauty, like it's the cue it, is a thing of absolute beauty. Yes, it is I British did, as I, personified. It is British as personified. This very, very lengthy, very, very orderly cue to see their their monarch. I get that. I did enjoy the joke the other day. Uh, I think it might have been the chaser or the shovel indicating that patrons of the queue were were dismayed after fifteen hours to realise that it was actually the Qantas check in queue at Heathrow. You'd be gutted, right? <laughs> that was actually the case. That's brilliant. Oh, the chaser and I, the shovel, which, keep... like both of them have been on fire. They last have been. Once. It's, yeah. Yes, yes. I did, I did enjoy that one. And, you know, there will be those who think that that's crass and insensitive and all of those sorts of things, but um, I did find that one funny, I have to say. Yeah, that was very clever. So, yeah, like I... Like you, I have I have mixed feelings. I actually, you know, I do feel quite sad on on some levels because she was such an like an, an eternal presence. I mean, anybody under the age of seventy has never known another British monarch. True. And like even my mother, I mean, she's in her seventies and she was a child when uh, Queen Elizabeth's father passed. So right, her sort of adult memory obviously would be. Of Queen Elizabeth, as as is mine, as is so many people. So, this is a significant event, and it's it's you know it is historical and that sort of thing. It's what well, actually one thing I find fascinating is the the three significant rulers of of Britain, which is obviously Queen Elizabeth the first. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she's the one queen that everyone knows about. Then you mm-hmm. have Queen Victoria, who is now the second longest reigning British monarch. Yes. And yes. then Queen Elizabeth II. It's really fascinating because I was reading somewhere that bet- between Queen Victoria and between Queen Elizabeth II, I think there were maybe six male monarchs who, in comparison, had incredibly short reigns. Yeah. And un- I wouldn't say not, not uneventful, but certainly, you know, undistinguished reigns. And then a woman takes over. Yeah, there might be a lesson in there. Babies. <laughs> There might be a lesson in there. So where shall we begin? There's a lot to talk about. So, look, I, I, I think let's acknowledge right at the outset that the, the, the notion of the British monarchy and the, notice, the notion of British imperialism has uh, a, a lot of pomp and pageantry and privilege and history and all of those sorts of things associated with it. A lot of people look on... The, the the might of the British Empire with awe and passion and those sorts of things and like that's sort of one side of it and and you look at the the influence that they exerted over the world was 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 massive like it really really was massive and it, and it stands to this day as as one of the most widespread empires that the world has ever seen i think uh just before we we began recording you were saying that something like a quarter of the world's population was under british rule at one time and that is that is quite a large sway and with that comes a history of invasion of colonialism of brutality, of exploitation, of slavery, which continued right up to recent times. Mm. 
if not the present day, depending on who you are and how you choose to define those things. And that history shouldn't be ignored and nor should we expect people to ignore it when that is their lived experience of the British crown and British imperialism. Yeah. Now, for my part, I'm my heritage is Irish, as you might imagine. The idea of the British monarchy and the idea of Great Britain even uh, is one that holds a fair amount of negative connotations for me. The reason that my family is in Australia at all is due to British oppression of the Irish during the late 18th century, early 19th century, my first ancestor was transported here, uh, a political prisoner arrested as part of the Irish militia, if memory serves. The next person who came was like a um, an, an economic transportee, if you like, sent here for petty theft. You know, like, and, and so the story goes, more came uh, during the, the Irish famine, um, which was manufactured by the, the English. Those sorts of events are the history of my family's relationship with the, the British monarchy. I really don't have a great deal of love for them, and it's quite difficult for me to look on them with any kind of, you know, like love or reverence or, or any of that sort of thing. And that's before we get into the more political, ideological, democratic aspects of what's the point of an hereditary monarchy in the first place. But that's so that that's that's my history of it. Now, the the Irish were enslaved. The Irish were brutalised by the English. I mean, there's a history there of quite devastating attacks on the Irish over the last 400 years. And, it, and it, it pales in comparison to that same brutality that we see from the British in places like the subcontinent, in India, uh, the Bengal famine, which kills millions, tens of millions of, of people. And, and again, that was a manufactured famine. There was plenty of food and it was all uh, exported. It was all sort of taken away from the people who grew it and sold for the benefit of the British Empire. And you see that sort of time and time and time again. Yeah, look, we saw it in Australia. I mean, Captain Cook came here with express instructions to treat with the Indigenous population and he chose to ignore that. And, yeah. you know, so, yeah, it, it's difficult because, I mean, for all that Queen Elizabeth appeared to have been, you know, quite a charming and kind and pleasant person she's the literally the living embodiment of a thousand years of you know frequently brutal invasion and oppression and as we were saying before we started recording i mean that stuff didn't stop when she became queen i mean there are some quite horrific events have happened under her rule and essentially in her name and for all that we Yes, we absolutely should honour her for her, you know, for a lifetime, quite literally a lifetime of selfless uh, service because, you know, to keep in mind that she was never meant to be queen, you know, her uncle abdicating the throne and sort of thrusting first her father and herself into the into the role of monarch. Her, so because of that, you know, she stepped up and, and you know, the... Yeah, I think the thing, the, the prevailing uh, sort of image of the Queen is just her, over, you know, this overwhelming sense of duty that she had. And absolutely we should honour her for that. But the way discourse has been, I think, quite viciously shut down 
in Australia over the last 10 days, when any, whenever anyone sort of steps up to go, yeah, but has been as a nation we should be that there should be enough room to be able to acknowledge and honor and pay our respects and all that stuff but at the same time acknowledge that part of her legacy is being the representative of this empire and not everyone's going to be happy with it no you know people are allowed to not not be Mm. happy and to have incredibly mixed feelings I mean, uh, there's been a meme going around that I actually had to fact check before we we started recording because I really mm. wasn't sure if it was true or not. But it turns out that it is, and I, I have an article that we'll link to on the show notes to prove it. But of the 191 members of the United Nations, Britain, no, sorry, 193, I should say, I'm getting my facts wrong. Mm. Uh, of uh, of the 193, Britain invaded 171 of them. So that's a heck of a legacy to be responsible for. You know, up to yeah, including the present day. Yes. And there there will be, and, and there has been over the last week and a bit, there have been plenty of people who've expressed angst at the idea that not everyone would simply pay deference and pay their respects to the passing of a monarch. As I say, like for a lot of people, it's just not... It doesn't hold the same significance. Their their relationship to the crown was not a good one. The idea that the monarch of England has passed is something that's over there and not something that they can or should or or want to engage with closely themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Having got that out of the way, the reason why we're talking about the Queen today is Mm -hmm. not so much because of the Queen uh, or even because of our new monarch, King King Charles, which mm-hmm. is, still feels very strange to be saying, it's it's the issue of a, of a republic, and now is not the time. <laughs> oh my God, which, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the Democrats have always been a pro-republic party. Um, yes, so we, you know we've we've because it's consistent with our idea of being a pro-republic or a pro-democratic party. Exactly. So, you know, I think the Twitter team, you know, that they they put quite a um, I felt quite a nice tribute to to Queen Elizabeth out when, when the news broke and acknowledged the ending of the second Elizabethan age because mm-hmm. she was a ruler of consequence, which I, I think is yeah. straddled that line between acknowledging all the good stuff but also acknowledging the um the legacy, the very, very mm-hmm. complicated legacy that she holds. But and and I'm certainly not suggesting that we need to drop everything and become become a republic tomorrow. But I think a lot of other nations outside of Australia who are in exactly the same position of us of Australia in, in terms of being essentially a vassal state still <laughs> are having this conversation and having it quite openly and quite maturely and at the same time acknowledging and paying their respects to the to their recently passed monarch and i find it really odd that australia apparently can't have that conversation you know we, we've had a there's been it's been really quite surreal because the the australian republic movement literally <clears throat> posted a tweet saying that they're suspending their campaign for the duration of the morning period you know out of respect which came as, I think, a profound shock to most people to discover that the ARM was still a thing and that they were actually campaigning enough that they needed to then suspend that campaign. Yeah. 
a friend of mine yeah. sent me that tweet and said, you need to look at the quote tweets because they, I think they had turned off responses to it, which was indicative of, I, I want to say that it like it demonstrated a certain sort of lack of courage, I think. Like if you're going to put something like that out there, be, be willing to accept the feedback that you're going to get on it. And so people were choosing to quote tweet and provide their feedback that way because a direct uh, reply was not available to them. Mm -hmm. And some of those responses were incredibly entertaining. Yeah, I feel it. I mean, that that made me, I, I, I think I actually had far stronger feelings about that than I did about the uh, the passing of the Queen and whether or not we should be paying respects to her. It was, it was an odd one and, and it remains an odd one. We've had... The, the argument put forward that, that out of respect for the monarch, we shouldn't be talking about a republic. This is the same monarch who, when we actually had a referendum for a republic, was quite supportive of the fact that the Australian people should have a debate and have their say on how they wish to manage their affairs. Like that was her view on it. So I, I don't know exactly who we might be being disrespectful to by continuing to talk about the very same topic that she was supportive of earlier. Like that part has been a little bit odd. It's also been a little bit odd just exactly who has come out in favour of this idea that out of respect we should stop, including the Australian Republican movement. Like the idea that they would put pens down and and pause is a strange one for me as well. And then all sorts of leaders who I would and who are on the Republican side of the debate in terms of how Australia's constitutional um, head of state should be selected and, and who that person might be again, has been a little bit surprising that some of those people have come out and said, no, 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 we're we're going to go through this mourning period and, and, and then afterwards, maybe, you know, when things have settled down a little bit, then might be the time. And I think it's, we see this a lot with the gun lobby in America and the gun debate in, in America. And we also see it around climate change, this idea that in the midst of a crisis, in the midst of an event, in the midst of something happening, it's not the appropriate time to talk about it. And yet you would think that when it is top of mind, that would be exactly the time that you would use that as a bit of a learning moment or a bit of an opportunity to start talking about it when there's plenty of information floating around. We're about to get a king or we now have a king and you would think that that is exactly the time that one might ask the question, why Mm. do we really need one? Do we want one? What are they good for anyway? (laughs) And might we not achieve the same or better outcomes another way? Mm. And it's it's not a reflection on the person who either they just vacated the role of the sovereign or the person who has just stepped into the role of the sovereign. It is a complete fluke of fate that Mm. either of them are in the roles that they're in. Mm. They didn't win a contest. They didn't get voted in. It's not because they're good at it or any of those sorts of things. It's just a trick of fate that they were born into it. Mm -hmm. So who cares, really? Who cares? Yeah. The late Queen made it very, very clear that she did not take it personally when um when Paul it was Paul Keating who sat her down and said, Well, we're gonna go have this discussion and she and, and she was like, Cool, knock yourselves out. So if she, if she was not offended by it In life. In life indeed. I can't see why King Charles would be offended by it. And in his first speech as monarch, he mm. 
I mean, he's literally the king of Australia, which I think is something that people really need to stop and think about. But he pledged his undying love and loyalty and devotion and service to the United Kingdom, of mm-hmm. which he is monarch. Mm-hmm. And then Australia got lumped in with all of the other realms that he happens to be head of state of. Yes. And he he was literally in Barbados representing mm. his mother mm. when they declared that they would be becoming a republic and, and, and would be replacing her as head of state. And he was entirely supportive and it was not appropriate for the queen to turn up there as, as head of state and cop that message, but she sent her son who, yeah. who would succeed her and he was quite happy to have that conversation with Barbados and support yeah. them in their journey. I... Look, I, I think while the coverage is going on in amongst the endless coverage of the queues of people looking to see the Queen's coffin, of the commentary around the state of the flowers that are being delivered and who's paused to look at them and for how long and coverage of which royal couple are holding hands and for how long and whether that's a sign of the decay of the monarchy or, or modern society or otherwise, we might have found some time to include a little bit of a look at the uh, history of the British monarchy, the history of the British Empire, and maybe ask one or two questions about the future of this country and whether or not we might look on shifting to a republic, you know, now that you see what it actually gets us and what it means for us, we've got a new head of state because he happened to be born first into a particular family. Is that really how we wish to be governed and, and ruled? That that is somehow offensive. Mm. I just don't understand. I think this is really and, – and look, I, f- I feel for Anthony Albanese. I mean, he has had a wild uh, first few months as Prime Minister – yeah, he's 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 about to have a, a wild summer as well with another series of flooding that could take out the east coast again. It hasn't been short on bumps. No, and he is an openly Republican prime minister. His party is openly Republican. He's literally appointed an assistant minister in charge of working out how he become one, who yep. he then had to put into hiding. <laughs> <laughs> last 10 yeah, days because Matt Thistle the Thwaite cannot be found anywhere. I do understand sort of the dilemma he's in because he does have to tread carefully. As the Prime Minister, he has to follow protocols that, protocol. that were laid yeah, out yeah, long yeah. before he yeah. became Prime Minister. Yeah, he has that. to replicate, you know, he has to represent the nation. We get all that. That is fine. And I do understand his instinct of going, it's not even that now is not the time. Like he's, he's never come out and said it, but he's deflected it by saying, well, actually, the thing that is way more important is the voice to Parliament for the First Nations people. And he's correct because the voice to Parliament, that is between them and the Crown who invaded their unceded lands, mm. massacred their people, enslaved mm. their people and, and took their country from them. And I think it... because. Uh, for a long time, I was really worried that we would not get a voice before we became a republic, that in order to get to that bit, we had to become a republic first and, and, and sort of cut those ties and grow up a bit. But now I'm, I think it's actually going to be the opposite, that that reckoning between First Nations people and the Crown will then set us free to actually then become a republic because the voice in many ways is about justice 
and to become a republic before that question of justice has been dealt with, I think would be to, in some ways, cheat First Nations all over again, you know, but I think enshrining the voice in the constitution and dealing with, yeah, and, and this is separate to Makarata and the truth-telling and, and all of the reckoning with our history that must come from this, but in that sort of direct relationship with the Crown and that reckoning of the great lie of Terra Nullius and that sort of thing, I think that implementing the voice first, I think, is considerably more important than moving toward becoming a republic. And so I, I do agree with and support Albanese in taking that line. So fine. Okay, absolutely fine. If you want to queue up referendums, do them in that order by all means. Like I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. The idea, though, that I have to shut up about one of those things and and simply not mention it just is in itself offensive. Um, oh, you know, yes. like given the history that we're talking about and and what it looks like to be on the wrong side of British aggression, the idea that. That side of things, you know, like the people who don't have love for the monarchy, the people who do want independence, the people who do want a a republic should be quiet and pay respects. It's just odd. odd. We can continue to have a discussion. We can continue to have to think about these things. Now is a perfect time to talk about it when we have so much focus on the role of the monarchy and so much focus on what it means to have a head of state who's foreign. It was interesting. I was listening to an interview with Professor Jennifer Hocking this morning, she of the Palace Letters fame, a constitutional lawyer and a, and a, 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 um, a researcher and, and author of, of quite deep knowledge of the role of a constitutional monarch. And, and hearing her speak about the clear political role that the palace both Queen Elizabeth and, at the time, Prince Charles, played in the dismissal was fascinating because the, the idea of a, of a constitutional monarch should be, and, and we've been hearing it a lot in, in the past week in relation to Charles, King Charles' uh, environmental advocacy, that he needs to stop that now because it's a political issue and it, he needs to be apolitical, but it, apparently it didn't stop him tinkering in Australian internal affairs um, and having a duly elected prime minister removed from office. So, again, yeah, yeah, now seems exactly the time to be having a nuanced conversation about the role of the monarchy and about uh, an Australian republic. Absolutely. Having that conversation does not mean that we're going to be rushing off to render from. No. God, let me try no. that again. Referendum, if I can speak properly, yeah. next week. It's it's literally having a conversation, and I don't see what yeah. is offensive about that. And I think no. also this this and a, a number of, of commentators have written some very good pieces about this. But this sort of forelock tugging is obsequiousness that our media elements of our political class, mm. other areas of our society. Mm. Have been, have been uh, indulging in the last ten days. It's quite something to behold in light of our history with the yeah. British Crown. And I yeah. don't. And yeah, you know, we, we've covered off the the issue of First Nations and how they quite rightly feel about the British Crown. But here's a pop quiz for you, Steve. Mm. When when was it? Do you think what year did Australian citizenship become a thing? 
I'm not sure you I, I understand the nature of the question. And in what year? So when when was it possible to become an Australian citizen? Is that what you're when, saying? Like to get an Australian was, passport and do those sorts of things? Oh no no no! So the Australian passports were issued in 1901 when we federated. Right. Yeah. But when was it that? People born in Australia were considered to be Australian citizens and not British citizens. Oh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to take a little bit of a guess, but I'm I'm guessing 1968. No. No? 1949. 1949. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't until after- Quite late. Yeah, very, very late, which was really shocking to me. And I have to thank Mark Kenny- for pointing this out, because this was a little piece of Australian history that I had never been taught. So in the past, when we've Australia has had a debate around changing our flag yes. and people have gone, but well, we can't change the flag. We fought under that flag during two world wars, and that is not true. We fought under the British flag in World War I. Yeah. Why? Because we, had, we were British we, citizens. Yeah, we had a little patch to distinguish us from the other colonial forces, but, you know, imperial forces, sorry, the, the yes. Yep. Yes, and the um, the current Australian flag, I, I think, didn't actually come into effect until 1984, and there's a little bit of a history behind that one. <laughs> so we we were considered British citizens, literally still part of a British colony up to 1949. We had fought two world wars and under the auspices of being British citizens up until that point. That was really shocking to me. Mm. And First Nations people, as, as people are probably aware, weren't recognised as actual human beings and granted their own citizenship until 1967 when we held a referendum to actually grant that to them Mm -hmm. because up until that point they were counted among the fauna of a continent that they have inhabited for 80,000 years. If you're going to talk about things that are offensive, isn't that more offensive? Yeah. Isn't yeah. that more offensive? Uh, and look, I, I, I have to say one of the more galling parts or effects of protocol and white man protocol at that uh, over these past 10 days was seeing the Aboriginal flag flying at half-mast on the Sydney Harbour Bridge over the last week. Like, I can't tell you That's... in what kind of bad taste that is. And I know, you know, like protocol says that no flag should fly higher than the Australian flag and the Australian flag is flying at half-mast because to take the Aboriginal flag down then. Yeah, but the idea that yeah. you would fly it at, at, at half mast to honour the the Queen is yeah, that was and a lot of people mm. have come out questioning that one. Yeah, that that just doesn't that just doesn't sit well. Yeah, the relentless logic of colonial protocol when it actually hits the reality of some of these decisions is is distasteful. And here's another um, trivia thingy for you, Steve. Nice. When, when did – and now you and I were alive when this happened, Ooh, right? Okay. Give a bit of a clue, right? Okay. So what year did you and I cease to be British subjects? Uh, I would have said that was around the time that Britain joined the EU. So I'm going to say mid to late 70s, mm. somewhere in there. No? 1984. 84. Wow. Which is Man. really like, – also really shocking to me. <laughs> Wow. Because 1984 was when I was a British citizen for 13 years and didn't know it. Oh no, no you were a subject. I was. A... <laughs> you weren't a citizen. You were an Australian citizen, 
but you were a British subject. <laughs> Because 1984 was the year when the I feel so happy time. about that. I feel so happy about that. <laughs> I know, like your your, your Irish ancestors are probably spitting in their graves right now. Oh my god! Um, yep. But so uh. what it was in 1984? <laughs> that was when the legal ties and that the legal sort of ownership of Britain over Australia was dissolved and. The uh, the buck in, in terms of our our legislation and our mm-hmm. our laws, the bucks transferred from the Privy Council to the High Court of Australia. Where if you're going to overturn something, yeah, okay. it happens in the High Court. Right. So, so that, that explains why Advanced Australia Fair was made the national anthem in 1984. Yes. Okay, and we stopped singing "God Save the Queen." Fantastic. Yep. Yeah, and that's when the current Australian flag came into circulation as well. Nice. Yeah. and that- Amazing how quickly these things become, you know, like chiselled in stone and can't possibly be changed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was really, really shocking to me that Britain had- All rather late. Yeah, like how late we have achieved, like, a mod- you know, I wouldn't say modicum, but we have achieved the independence we ha- have up until this point. For, for you and I to have been born British subjects- and mm. I mean, we was we were probably children when when sure. when those ties were cut. But it was really really shocking to me to realise that. It's nice to know though that in two thousand and nine, my daughters were born free. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Monarchist in 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 their quest to demonstrate that we don't need to change and. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, kind of thing. Sure. They kind of gloss over how deeply the sort of the tentacles of British power were embedded in Australia and how mm. recently they were embedded. Yeah. They're, they're also coming at it from a place of privileged, where sure, it's not broken for them, but it's always been broken for a lot of other people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very much so. But um, and this comes back to the dismissal, and it comes back to Jennifer Hocking. Uh, I mean, she literally wrote wrote a book about this, and people should go mm. read that book because it yep. is staggering. Because it wasn't simply the palace interfering in Australian democracy, as you said earlier. It was literally the Queen and Prince Charles, mm. because Prince Charles bumped into John Kerr in Papua New Guinea, I believe. Yes, somewhere, and they there. had a chat about it. Yeah. You know, like this this was not nudge nudge wink wink sort of stuff being directed through the Queen's private secretary, although a lot of it was, or other sort of functionaries. This was literally the heir to the throne mm-hmm. gently, right. you know, encouraging Kerr, you know, having a chat up to Kerr about dismissing a democratically elected Prime Minister two months before it happened. And now that man is our king. Mm-hmm. Put it into context for you, people. Yes. It, yeah, it, it doesn't sit well. I mean, Osman Faruqi had a brilliant piece in the f- papers formerly known as Fairfax, which I'll put into the show notes, about the fact that the Republican movement really, like, there's basically there's nobody over the age of or under the age of 30 or under the age of 40 who's sort of representing the Republican movement in Australia. Yeah, very true. And it needs, the whole movement needs to be refreshed. It needs to be made relevant to People in their twenties and thirties who they're looking, they're staring down, a, you know, a global catastrophe with climate change, their immediate crises in housing, in 
you know, it's basically social equity that they're dealing with. And so their sort of position is, well, why should we give a shit about who our head of state is when we've got all these other crises to be dealing with? And he's not wrong, but also I, I feel like, you know, so many of those crises hinge on who we are as a country right now and how we see ourselves right now and becoming a republic and severing those final ties with the monarchy, reconciling our history and that legacy with First Nations and, and you know, the last 250-odd years in this country. Yeah, It's not just symbolic shit. That feeds into then who we are in terms of it our is. society and our future and our children, you know, the future of the young people going, why should I give a shit about this when I'm, I'm going to die because the planet's going to burn? It is very difficult to put forward the argument that you take seriously issues of inequality, issues of democratic institutions, issues of the the role of the media in maintaining the integrity of our, our institutions and our democracy and, and a whole raft of other issues. When you see our elected representatives showing such overt deference to an hereditary monarch, I get just jars it absolutely jars that over on one side we're talking about putting forward a vision for this country and fighting for a thriving Australia and you know what we're doing for our environment and how we look after each other and then this blatant pageantry and pomp and just encrusted ceremony going on with everyone bowing and curtsying and I, I you can't have that going on and seriously expect people to listen to you when you talk about the strength of our democracy. Yeah. Like it just, those two things are inherently contradictory and I, 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 I just can't fathom it. I mean, that for me would be the thing that I would be saying to those, to the younger Australians, the first step in really being able to have true self-determination in this country is to cut that tie with somebody born into ruling over you. Mm. It is just anathema to our democratic ways of, of being. Yeah. And two things have highlighted how fragile our democracy actually is. And, and the first one was the dismissal because yep. the question of whether a Governor-General has the power to dismiss a Prime Minister has never been resolved. Kerr did it, and there is an argument that Whitlam should have told him to get fucked and refuse to stand down and go to an election. Whitlam did anyway. <laughs> I thought the second part about refer uh, refusing to stand down, but the first part about telling him to fuck off. Um, I think maybe. Yes. I like to think so. Anyway, I do too. You know? Yeah, you know, but sort of like a, a fatal error that Whitlam made was ironically accepting it. Was, yeah, accepting it and respecting the the position of the Queen's representative. It, it's it's ironically both Kerr's objection to a Labor government from a class and and yes. privilege and establishment sort of perspective, which he. Mm spent months writing to the Queen about. Yeah. And then ironically, Whitlam, as that democratically elected Prime Minister, also deferring 
to that class and establishment and everything else sure. and accepting yeah. his dismissal. That's number one. And then the second mm. one is actually much more recent, which is our friend Scott Morrison and his secret ministries and the current Governor-General, David Hurley, signing him into those ministries without a peep. When, yeah. when, it, when it became obvious that Morrison was not going to publicise this, not doing a damn thing about it himself. And yeah. much as people and Republicans like you and I would probably like to be able to reassure people that becoming a republic is simply just crossing out where it says governor general and putting in president and then it's all good. Mm. It's actually not the case because there no, are there are serious sort of structural thingies, uh, thingies, how I'm getting technical with you, serious yeah. structural Technical thingies, yes. <laughs> technical thingies. <laughs> technical constitutional thingies even. That's indeed, yeah. There are constitutional thingies that we do need to actually resolve. It's There is actually a really strong argument that we actually need to rip up our constitution and start again. Well, it was, written, it was written from the point of view of a federation of states and they were quite possessive of their existing powers, all of that kind of stuff. And we can see that in any number of cases where that doesn't work well, Murray-Darling Basin, for one, mm. COVID response, for two. Mm. And that's before we get into issues like our relationship with First Nations people or a, a, a raft of other issues, how education and health are financed, for example. There's, there's a lot that we we do need to tease apart and it could be rewritten. There's also some danger in wholesale rewriting of constitutions. America is heading down this path of rewriting its constitution and it's, well, they're getting dangerously close. And the reason I say dangerously close is that the way the American constitution is written, any new drafting of a constitution would devolve back to the states and a, and a, and a, and a council of the, of the states. And, and a lot of them are Republican controlled. And, and that rings alarm bells because, and, uh, because of authoritarian tendencies that exist in those Republican-held states. But, yes, sorry. Oh, gotcha. Go. No, no, I was just going to say, like, the, the irony of that, of course, is that the American Constitution was written expressly to prevent a tyrannical government and it's sort of it's 200-odd years later has, has accidentally laid the foundation of that actually occurring because, because of that devolution to the states and, and to a demagogue that those state governments are loyal to. So yeah, no, completely correct that constitutional reform is fraught. It's it's deeply fraught, but we as a nation, the the, the investment of power in our executive and in our head of state, who regardless of who that person happens to be, whether it is a, a, a hereditary monarch who just know we just get lumped with or someone that we select yeah. there, there are powers there and rules and authorities that that need to be more clearly defined in order to mm. ensure that shit like the dismissal or stuff that's happening in america yeah. doesn't happen kerr kind of punched a hole in that and i hate to sound like i'm picking on on her late majesty but you know, with the collaboration and encouragement exactly of right. both our late monarch and our new monarch, and then Scott Morrison drove a truck through it all. So, and as you say, you know, like a lot of those issues haven't been resolved, and and probably should be. I mean, you you mentioned Whitlam acceding to the dismissal or accepting the dismissal because he strongly believed in. 
the uh, the power and importance of following conventions, um, mm. and I think it's it's one of those things that you see with the conservative side of politics that they will weaponize convention when it suits them, and then yes. ignore conventions when it suits them. You know, like completely blow them up when it when it suits them, like with Morrison's ministries and with the dismissal. It's just like the convention was. No, the advice from the Solicitor General was, no, you don't have that power, and he went ahead and did it anyway. So Yeah, he had advice from you know, both the Attorney General and the Solicitor General, but that the palace was egging him on. Yeah, I feel like as a nation, that that whole thing, I think, I don't think has been properly explored. I don't think people really, really understand the significance of that. And it, and it explains why the palace fought very, very hard to keep the palace letters under lock and key as private correspondence Absolutely. because of what they revealed and yeah. what they revealed is not flattering. So, and this comes back to the really awful shit happening under Queen Elizabeth's rule. It happened to Australia. It's ha- terrible things happened in another a number of the other nations that she ostensibly was, you know, ruled as, you know, I mean, she was Queen of Australia. She is Queen of Northern Ireland. Well, she was, I should say. It's really hard as I reflect, to separate the charming and warm and comforting kind of presence she was on our TV screens with the shit that was happening in the background because this notion that she was entirely apolitical, that she you know, she spent 70 years being a master of this sort of silent support to various governments around the world really only demonstrates that what she was was a master politician. So, look, let's get on to the Republic. So we had a referendum on the Republic in the, I think, 1998? 1999, somewhere in there. Yep. Somewhere in there. Yep. And it failed. And, and and the interpretations of it have always been the whole the whole thing of, you know, it's not, it's not broke, don't fix it. And, and when a push came to the shove, people weren't willing to step away from the monarchy. I actually think that's incorrect. I think what it yeah. demonstrated, it, it was it was not a vote to become a Republic what it was was a vote for the ability to to directly elect a president because of you know, the way Howard, who you know, John Howard, who was an avowed monarchist, framed the referendum. I mean, he framed it to get exactly the outcome he wanted, which was to maintain the status quo. And so he framed it in terms of, well, if you want to, if you want to be a republic, this is the model that you're going to get. And a lot of Republicans looked at that model and went, "No, thank you." Exactly because it was you know, it, it was, was it was the lesser or at least the poorer of the three dominant models at the time, right? And look, yeah. I'll admit that I was one of those people that voted no because if we were going to go to the trouble of changing the constitution and replacing the queen at the time with a president. I wanted to have a say in who that president was. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to follow the American an, an American style presidency because the American system is very, very distinct and separate to the Westminster style of government that we've inherited from Britain. And so a directly elected president does not necessarily mean an American style president. In fact, there are directly elected presidents models around the world that are vastly different from the American style one. The Irish model, I think, is actually a far better fit for Australia than the, you know, the American one. And and you can see if you, and I'll I'll link, again, I'll link to this in in, uh, the show notes, but on the Wikipedia page about the Irish president, you can see where they have literally crossed out Governor General and put President in. (laughs) But also they have, you know, I think resolved the matter of 
the role and the responsibilities of the Irish president, because I don't yes. think he has the power to dismiss a democratically elected Irish government. Right. But the person in that, and I say he because the current Irish president is yes. male. But, you know, he is the commander-in-chief of their armed forces. He is the head of state. He has a number mm -hmm. of both functional and ceremonial roles that he enacts on behalf of the Irish state. Yeah. And I think that's quite an elegant solution. I, I recall at the time of the referendum on a republic in Australia that the actual support for the idea of moving away from a constitutional monarchy and, and away from a British sovereign head of state was strongly supported. You know, like mm. a clear majority of Australians were happy with that idea. It was only when you then said, well, here's, here's the model that you have to choose if that's what you want, which I, I think was a deliberate ploy on, on the part of the Howard government to split the vote so that oh. no actually got up. But that was, you know, like that was that was the thing. If the referendum had simply been, do you support an Australian republic and we'll figure out the details later, then three quarters, two thirds of the Australian population would have voted yes quite happily. Absolutely. Um, and, and then we could have set up a constitutional committee to figure out well, what kind of model of a republic that we want. This idea that we had to pick that one, yeah, was, was deliberately, deliberately odd and deliberately divisive. Oh, yeah, and, and deliberately designed to ensure that, you know, it didn't get carried. Yeah. And the great tragedy was that the, the other question that did not get carried at the same time was recognition of First Nations people in the constitution. Sure. Which I think people forget about. So I do understand Albanese's instinct to separate those two out, those two questions out, and yeah. fight for the voice and fight for, for First mm -hmm. First Nations recognition as a standalone piece. But the, the two questions are linked because yes. recognising First Nations people is, is a form of justice that is long overdue. Mm. But it is really the first step in resolving our identity as a nation. At some point, we need to allow ourselves to stop being defensive on behalf of the British colonial system. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't seem to be there yet. The, the idea that we need to defend the honour of the British Empire is something that still seems deeply ingrained, as we've seen over the past week. And people are vehemently defensive of and quite, you know, like allergically defensive of the British monarchy. The idea that they did anything wrong can't can't touch that. Similarly, the idea that there were frontier wars, that there were massacres, that there were atrocities committed, that there was slavery in Australia, you know, like this kind of thing. These are all things that you can't really canvas without getting into quite a divisive, vitriolic discussion very, very quickly in this country. Yeah. Even though the evidence is obvious, it's it's clear. It should be quite clear that Australia has and always like is and always has been built on racist foundations, built on mm. quite strong colonial exploitative foundations. And as soon as you sort of say that, even though it should be a well, yeah, you get this really vituperative response. I mean, what we've seen over the last 10 days in the suffocatingly blanket coverage 
and this, this, as you said, defensiveness of the crown and the monarch and the empire and and all this sort of thing. Tim Dunlop wrote an incredible piece where he, as he so often does, he does. Yeah, look, he's very consistent. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> Love, love your work, Tim. But yeah, he's he's, he's very consistent in writing great stuff, which uh, you know regular listeners of the podcast will be aware of that I keep mm-hmm. bringing up. So, mm-hmm. but in this piece especially, he he actually wrote two pieces. One was was kicking the media for the the blanket coverage and the sort of I guess lack of imagination that it was demonstrating. But also, he wrote a follow up piece about how the pomp, the ceremony, the and I, and I don't mean this disparagingly, but the theatre of this mourning period. It is, you know, privilege protecting itself and and we've because we've had a slippage. The woman who has, uh, you know, represented the crown on the world stage for 70 years is no longer with us and there is that transferal of power and in that moment there is vulnerability to the establishment and the exercise of that power. And all of this elaborate performative theatre of mourning hmm. is, del- you know, it, it is deliberate to reassert and re-cement and re-establish that power. And that's where I'm pretty sure it was Tim who, who, who raised this. That's where the, the Australian Republican movement stepping back and going, oh, we're going to cease campaigning until all this is over. He sort of framed it as being the strategic error because in that moment, because once this period is over, then people will be going, oh, we need to, you know, know, Charles has waited this long, we need to give him a chance. And then in 20 or so years when this happens again, because Charles is in in his 70s, then I'd be like, oh, but it's William. We grew up with, like, you know, we watched William grow up. We need to give him a chance. There's nothing that Charles can do as a hereditary monarch that makes him a good head of state for Australia. Like it's there's there's absolutely nothing that he can do. Just like there really was nothing that Queen Elizabeth can do, and there's nothing that William might do that changes the fact that being born into a family shouldn't give you any right to rule over a fucking country. It should be that simple. It yeah. should be that simple. Yeah. And considering that he might be king of Australia. He's not an Australian citizen. He's at the risk of sounding tribal. He's not one of us. And it is it is offensive that a family on the other side of the world in a country who you know who, whose relationship to ours stems from their invasion of us should be our head of state, and an Australian cannot be. Yes, yes. Anyway, so yes, I, I don't need to give Charles a try. I don't need to try him on. He's not like a pair of new shorts. I don't need to try on to check the fit or any of that kind of stuff. I don't need a hereditary monarch literally lording over Australia. I just don't need it. I just do not require it <laughs> one little bit. Not at all. I, I, I do think it's, it's, an, it's an interesting one, though, that notion of it being a strategic error because in saying we won't, we'll, we'll respect the mourning period and that kind of stuff, they are essentially themselves asserting the significance of the crown. Yeah. Like and that's essentially what they've done. They've said yeah. the crown is, in fact, an important institution. The queen is, in fact, an important person. The monarch of Australia is, in fact, a legitimate thing and will pay due deference to her. 
and yeah. and after a suitable period of time has passed, then we'll come out and argue that that really is an odd. If if we're just looking at it in terms of the strength of their argument, that one's mm. a bit messed up. It is, yeah, and it's it's. I mean, again, Rachel Withers wrote an excellent love piece, love your work, um, Rachel. About just that, where she called out the Australian Republican movement, like why are you and the, the the gist of her piece was why are you vacating the stage? Yeah, at the one moment when you should be raising your voice, and <sighs> yeah. why are you allowing the monarchists to set the narrative? And, and here's the thing: so here's what happens as a result. Malcolm Farr, I think his name is, writing in whatever paper he writes in, sits there and says yesterday, the pageantry of the royal funeral has all but washed away any argument for a republic that we're likely to see. So, no, Malcolm, no. But because the Republicans have exited the stage, there's no one actually on stage to argue with Malcolm and say, you're an idiot. That's not mm. what's going on at all. But, like, literally everyone's wandered yeah. away to, you know, wait. Yeah. The uh, the Democrats' Twitter team shared Rachel's piece. Yeah. And it was the responses to it was really fascinating because it the was really was. The were fascinating. Yeah, because it, um, it, it really sort of read as, tell me you didn't read the article that we just shared without telling me you didn't read the article we just shared, because if they had read the article, they would have realised that it was not an attack on the monarchy or the queen or any, you know, literally anything to do with her. It was literally a – it was calling out the the Republican movement for what appeared to be their cowardice and their lack of conviction. Yep. And oh, I can't remember when it was. It was either last year or possibly 2020 – uh, the Democrats had just started to like, we were reviewing a lot of our policy platforms and things, mm. and mm. our Republican policy platform came up, which, of course, as as it still stands uh, at the moment, is a sort of pathway to holding mm. the ref- you know finding a pathway to hold the referendum, ask the question, and then get cracking on on what the model should be. What the model should be, yep. And because of that discussion, I thought, is the Australian Republican movement still a thing? So I googled them, and of course they were, and I thought about joining them. Oh yeah, and then I sat there and read their website. And at at the time, to be fair to them, <laughs> at the time, they didn't have a model. They they were literally calling yeah, out for okay. submissions for people to go. Well, what do you guys think? What do you, what do you, what kind of republic do you think we should be? Do you know what and I think? Do you know what I? Sorry, I, and, <laughs> no. I don't. I don't. I don't want to. I, I love a good train of thought, but I just need to interrupt and say I don't think anything could be more Australian than it. Good chook raffle, <laughs> where first prize is a meat tray, second prize you get to be the head of state. Nice, that's I like that. that don't you think we run it yeah. like once every? I don't know what the term might five be. Years two years, yeah. four years, five years. You know, like yeah. something off cycle with the federal election. Have a chook yeah. raffle, a national chook raffle. We sell tickets. Yep. We've got a, a little a little chocolate wheel that we spin something. <laughs> With you know, like twenty-five million numbers on it, something whatever the the you know scaled equivalent of a truck raffle wheel is, yeah. And the winner gets to become whatever we call them, president. Just yeah. But as I say, second prize, first prize is a meat tray because the first yeah. prize should always be a meat tray, and the second Absolutely. prize you get to be head of state. Yeah, I like it because it, yeah, it doesn't have to be president. It could be, I don't know, chief. The winner of the truck raffle. Yes, yeah. it could be the. 
just the winner of the hey, chook <laughs> who are you oh i won the chook raffle well yeah. actually i came second so here i am <laughs> yes i was the runner-up of the chook no, raffle no barbecue for me but i get to be head of state so uh, right. things, things could be worse sorry that's you, true you can, no no that is i love that public. that was You're delightful submissions and now i know yes. what i'm going to be doing tomorrow i'm going to be sending <laughs> them my idea for a national chook rap. well it's too late now unfortunately because oh, damn yeah okay. so at, the, at the time when i was looking at this i was infuriated i was actually no i wasn't even infuriated i was enraged because i was like you can't you are literally the Republican movement of Australia, like it is literally, you have one job and that is to convince this nation to cut the ties of the monarchy and you can't even fucking decide how you want this thing to work. Yep. How the hell are you going to convince the rest of the country? Like what the fuck? Um, And so in the lead up to us doing this podcast, I went back to the ARM website after a couple of years' absence and to their great credit, they have actually settled on a model. Oh, please tell um, me it's a chook raffle. <laughs> sadly, no. And I feel like we need to go back to them and go, oi, you guys missed a golden opportunity. So one of the, <laughs> one, of, one of the, I think, great frustrations of the nation was this idea that the head of state must be selected by the parliament. And I feel that that yeah. was robustly rejected by yeah. the country yeah, yeah, yeah. in the, in the yeah. referendum. Agreed. But it seemed to be something that the ARM was continuing to, to beat to death. But they appear to have been persuaded that that's a, no, that's a non-starter. And so their model now does include a directly elected president. Interesting. That, that's definitely worth checking out. And and so I have a modicum of respect back, but it's like, ew. While, while we're on the subject, although like tangentially, I, I just want to say how impressed I have been with the team behind and, and the, the, the many, many groups behind the Uluru Statement from the Heart and oh, the yes. way in which they have gone about their engagement with community right across the country to first come up with the Uluru Statement and, and, and those, those three components of it, Voice Truth Treaty, but also subsequently the way in which they've gone about communicating it, inviting conversation around it, engaging in discussion around it, advocating for it, that kind of stuff. That, that as someone who, who works in a, in a field where engagement and facilitation and collaboration is, is a core part of, of what we do, I was seriously impressed with the way they've gone about that over a long period of time with patience, respect, truly, truly an amazing piece of work. You know, getting, getting sort of the pulse of the nation, so to speak, just extraordinary. Mm. And the, the Republican movement really could learn a lot from them in how to engage the country. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they went through and they had this sort of series, and uh, I, I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting their journey, but they went through and they had a series of regional meetings. They met with community group after community group, community after community, spoke to welders, spoke to people, had discussions about what they wanted, what they needed, what they hoped for, their aspiration for a, a true reconciliation with, within Australia. And then at the end of each of those engagements, they would say, we need you to give us the names of your representatives that you will send to this council. We, we, we're going to get together. We, we're going to 
take what we've heard and we're all going to gather and we need you to send some people to be a part of that. And they had over 100 people in the end from all around, you know, representatives from all of these different communities that they'd spoken with along the way, then come together and work on what ultimately became the Uluru State from the heart. And it was, I mean, it's it a beautiful model uh, in terms mm. of just, you know, the effort that went into it, and these were volunteers, the effort that they put into it, the respect that they showed, the patience that they showed, the determination and persistence that they showed over a number of years to then arrive at what is a very powerful statement and a powerful invitation. Yeah, the Republican movement really could learn a lot. Uh, and I, I think we all could learn a lot and a lot of politicians could learn a lot about how to go about that notion of, of engaging with people deeply and understanding what it is they want. Yeah, because if the Republican movement has spent the 23, 24 yeah. years since the, that 1999 referendum doing that, my God. we would have been a republic 10 years ago. But Yeah, we, we would be already. Yeah, but it just feels like they, I think for a lot of people, it feels like they went dormant after Malcolm Turnbull accused John Howard of breaking the nation's heart. <laughs> Until they popped up after the death of the Queen going, oh, yeah, no, we're going to suspend our campaign. And everyone yeah. just went, what fucking campaign? Yeah. Where the fuck have you guys been? It's an odd, yeah. it, it really was odd. It was odd when they popped up and said, we're going to pause because that actually came as a surprise. It, it, yeah. And th this is the thing. It's just like, well, if, if, you know, if this is not something that is vital to you, how are you supposed to convince anyone else of it? And you contrast that against, as you said, the the journey that the, the volunteers behind the Uluru Statement from yeah. the Heart went through in comparison. It I would love to see that conversation picked up. I would love to see this country become a republic. I would love to see an Australian be the head of state, not the appointed representative of the British monarchy. These are all things that I, I, I would like to see. Australia becoming a republic is a step away from our colonial past. It's a step in reconciling ourselves with that colonial past. I think we, we need that separation in, in order to truly do it. I think it's important in terms of our ability to look at the way in which this country is not only managed, but what we aspire to as a country. We are still far too much the, the commodity supplier to other countries far too much we dig stuff out of the ground and ship it overseas for other people to make use of it we don't get much for it don't get much in the way of royalties a few people get very rich from it but as a nation we're not sharing in the prosperity that should come from it mm -hmm. we're certainly not in a position where you would look around and see uh, a, a nation of people who are thriving thriving culturally thriving artistically and creatively thriving intellectually we're not investing in those sorts of things um you know like there's there's so much where you go we, we could we should we can be doing better and i think this is just one of those steps that it's it, it's not it's not the only thing that we we need to do. Trust me, mm. there's a lot more work that we need to do in in order to get to the kind of country that I'm talking about. But it feels like a crucial step along the way. Absolutely, and I think one of the biggest steps in severing the ties to the British monarchy is that we finally stop looking to Europe and and North America for guidance, and we start engaging with the region in, in which. We sit geographically. Indeed. 
Yeah, you know, indeed. Because you know, sort of culturally and everything else, we we you know we are continuing to look to to Britain and and by extension Europe. The West. The West, thank you, yeah. In terms of our defence, you know, post-World War II, we, we've been hiding behind the skirts of the US. Mm. And if we chose to engage with our region and with our neighbours, we would have an opportunity to genuinely be independent in, in a lot of ways because what, watching the decline and, and potentially the fall of the mm. American Republic yeah. We we run the risk of ending up on the wrong side of history on that one. Indeed. And that's probably a podcast for another time. But um, Aren't they all? There's <laughs> always a new topic to move on to. So, yeah, so where the Democrats stand, obviously we are pro-Republic. Our current policy is a pathway to having a referendum, making that commitment to become a republic which is a, a, a function of when that policy was written. It, it mirrors in some ways where the current Labor government is in terms of yeah. their policy on becoming a republic and their intention. And, look, it is probably due for an update in light of current events. So we will go ahead and we'll do that and we'll, we'll keep everyone posted on, on um, where we end up with that. But I do think now that the sovereign has changed and we are under the benevolent rule of King Charles III, it's probably time for us to mm. decide what kind of model we as the party want to put forward. So there'll be some interesting discussions around that, I'm sure. And that will also probably be a subject for another podcast. So I had a chat with our national president, Lynn Allison, after Steve and I recorded this episode Lynn was in Parliament as a senator when the referendum on a republic was held in 1999. I mentioned in the podcast that the Democrats have always been a pro-republic party. Well, one thing I wasn't aware of was that we have also always been a pro-directly electing a president party. Lynn also made two very compelling observations. One, that becoming a republic ultimately has nothing to do with the current head of state, Charles III. Moving to become a republic shouldn't be a question of whether or not we like or dislike Charles, his children or his grandchildren. Becoming a republic is about Australia, about its people, about its history and its future, and whether or not shedding our ties to the country that colonised this continent is necessary for Australia as a nation to realise its full potential and realise its future. And secondly, while there is an official Australian Republican movement who, as I mentioned in the podcast, now have a proposed model for, for an Australian Republic, they are not the custodians of this issue on behalf of the nation. And if the nation chooses to become a republic, their model doesn't have to be the one we choose to implement. The question of Australia's future and whether or not we become a republic is up to all of us. And we are free to agree or disagree with the ARM as we see fit. We are free to want to become a republic and have an affection and respect for the royal family, if that's what we feel. However much culture warriors on both sides of the issue will want to make it one, this is not a binary discussion. We are a complex, multicultural society, and our national identity needs to reflect that. Since recording, Peter Fitzsimons has stepped down as the chair of the ARM, stating that his exit will pave the way for younger and more diverse voices in the movement. 
I've linked to an article on this, as well as the Osman Faruqi piece on the ARM and its need for generational and cultural renewal that I mentioned in the podcast. Post-election, the Democrats are reviewing and updating our policy platforms, which will of course include our platform on becoming a republic. Once that work has been done and we have an updated Republican platform available, I'll be sure to share it with you. If you enjoy Keep the Bastards Honest and you want to know more about the Democrats or to get involved, you can join us either for free as a supporter member or pay a small fee to become an ordinary member, which will give you the right to vote on party policies, elect our internal party representatives, or put your hand up to become a party representative yourself. The most recent federal election is complete, but there will be opportunities in local and state government coming up, and we'd love your help to field candidates at state level over the next couple of years. If you're time poor and you can't get involved, but you still want to help, you can donate to the party at our website. We know times are really tough at the moment, but if you can spare a few dollars, we'd appreciate it greatly. We're funded entirely by our members and supporters, and without you, we wouldn't be here. And if you just enjoy the podcast, which I really hope you do, you can support us just by telling your friends about it and help get the word out. We really appreciate you listening to the pod. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value, and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening.